We're in our study, as you know, the Gospel of John, chapter 10. And um, as you know, chapter 10 is one of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of John. Uh, as you might remember at the beginning of the chapter, uh, the Lord Jesus speaks of himself as the door. And we showed you that uh, image of what a sheepfold would have looked like, and actually still looks like today, where Jesus is the door leading into. And then secondly, I am the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Um, quite marvelous uh, metaphors and descriptive statements of who he is. And um, it just, uh, and the idea of the sheep hearing his name, he calls them, they follow him. And all that is a part of that precious and wonderful figure that we are God's sheep and our shepherd, the Lord Jesus, is both our door. He is the one who nurtures and cares for us. And again, one thinks of the uh, 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want you know that, that wonderful song. And then um, as we were getting ready to end the class last week on verse 22 through 30, we have the challenging words of Jesus. These are much more challenging. It's Hanukkah. It's the 18th of December, AD 32. Jesus is once again in Jerusalem. And as he follows on this idea of him being the shepherd, his sheep hearing his voice and so on, he compares the relationship of the sheep, uh, of his sheep and he is the shepherd with the relationship of him and his father an extraordinarily parallel there. And then he ends, and we spent a bit of time on that, I and the Father are one in verse 30. And uh, I, I'm not going to go over all that again, but that is a theological statement that affirms our uh, understanding of God as Trinity, one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. That's a definition of the Trinity that I use. And so, the, the Jewish leadership truly understood what Christ was saying in verse 31 because they want to kill him. Okay, now, the, the, particularly that last I and the Father one, are there any questions about that? That's just such a profound theological idea that's central to our understanding of God as Trinity. But any questions before we move on? All right, not hearing any. Now, again, with that context reviewed and so on, the Jews, and I'll remind you in verse 31, when John uses that phrase, he's largely speaking of the Jewish leadership. Sanhedrin, Pharisees, picked up stones to stone him. Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? So here again, uh, we see something quite central in the Gospel of John. Jesus is very much in control of the situation. And so he is challenging them, in effect, of all the things I've done in the good works, and we would understand that to be the messianic miracles that Christ has performed, which one of those are you going to kill me for? So then the Jewish leadership responds, verse 33, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So did they understand what Jesus was saying in 22 through 30? You bet they did. And therefore, they're charging him with blasphemy and want to kill him. Now, the Lord Jesus' response here, especially the first part, is a little difficult, but yet it isn't. So just follow me here. Because the Lord will respond to them with two points. Point number one is verse 34, 35, and 36. Point number two is in verse 37. So first point number one. This is the one that's a little complicated. So again, why are they going to kill him? Because they're charging him with blasphemy. He makes himself to be God. Jesus answered verse 34. Is it not written in your law? And uh, he then quotes that, I said you are God. The Lord Jesus just quoted from Psalm 82, 6. Now, 
when God is declaring that in Psalm 82, he's speaking to or speaking about leaders of Israel, judges in Israel, judicial officials, who because they are created in the image of God, he calls them gods, having that responsibility to speak for, interpret, and apply God's, uh, God's word, God's law. And again, remember, if, if I said you are gods, all human beings bear the image of God. That's the unique aspect of God's creative work. So Jesus then goes on. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, that's a little sidebar, but it's Jesus' view of scripture. It cannot be broken. It's authoritative. It's binding. It's infallible. Do you say of him, who the Father consecrated the sin to the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So if God can call judicial officials created in his image gods, quote, unquote, how much more appropriate is it for me to call myself the Son of God? Because I and the Father are one. And then he goes on, verse 37, if I am doing not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Jesus is the Father's emissary. And even if you don't want to believe me, and you don't want to believe who I am, you want to believe my person, at least believe in the supernatural enabling works that I do that prove I am the emissary of the Father. And so he repeats again, the Father's in me, and I am in the Father. Another way of saying, I and the Father are one. And so the Lord has kind of issued here a two-part response. If Jewish judicial officials can be called, created in the image of God and gods, why can't I call myself the Son of God? Because I and the Father are one. And even if you don't want to believe in who I am, at least believe in the supernatural enabling works that show God the Father sent me, because I'm doing supernatural works. I'm doing and what I like to call messianic miracles. And so the, um, the Jewish leadership is apparently not convinced, because in verse 39 we read, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands as John will say many, many times, his time has not yet come. All right, now, let me stop there. That's not hopefully too difficult. Any questions about that paragraph? Are you yes. sort of with me? Yeah. Uh, yeah. On, what's the, um, the word and the in? Uh, um, Father is in me and I'm, is it simply the preposition? Yes. Uh, so it has the same meaning as in English. Yes. Like I am, I am in the car, and the car is in me. <laughs> it would be an odd construction. Uh, well, yes. Uh, I, I guess the analogy you're making there, I am in the car. Um, the, the, the preposition is N, as I remember. E-N is how we would bring it into English, into the English language. But that has, um, that has a deeper meaning than just a, a, like a spatial meaning. You're thinking of it, I am in the car, as I am occupying a space, like in a seat in a car. That's, that's not exactly the sense of that Greek preposition, en. It, it very much is used of um, I am in Christ 242 times in the New Testament, which defines your identity as a Christian. You are in Christ. Paul loves to describe that. He uses that all over his 13 letters. So um, it has the idea of the empowering 
I am in the empowering presence of the Father, and the Father is in my empowering presence. It's another way of saying, back in verse 30, I and the Father are one. It's not just spatial. It's essential. Do you understand what I mean when I say it's essential? It's no, getting, no, I, I, it's I, getting I, at I, the essence of what it means to be God. I feel like I want to do more work in this area than because I get this. This is an argument from um, folks that want to say that Christ is not the same as God. They want right. to they want to move away from that, and um, so I'm always trying to to argue, you know, the Trinity, which well, is always difficult to well, fully grasp. Well, yeah, yeah, it is. Well, Russ, I'll tell you if you if you really want to do some digging theologically verse 30 and verse 38 are what are called theologically mutual coherence c-o-i-n-h-e-r-e-n-c-e mutual coherence and it that's why that little preposition e-n and in greek it's much more than just spatial mm-hmm. And so, I mean, if you just Google that or get a theology book and look, look for that concept, mutual coherence, because that's really what the Lord uh, Jesus is arguing. And that's really been, well, I mean, Christ doesn't use that phrase, but that's really been the argument of Jesus from chapter 14, verse 1. It will be the argument of Jesus from chapter 14, verse 1, all the way through 17 verse 21, where it ends with the high priestly prayer of Jesus. That whole idea of mutual incoherence, father and son, is what Jesus is defending and explaining. Again, he doesn't use that phrase, but that's the theological concept. Now, that doesn't help, but you said you want to dig deeper. Dig yep. deeper, looking, Will do. looking for that phrase. Yep, thank that's you. That's really what's going on here. All right. That was an easy question. Any others? <laughs> All right, let's move into what is really the final section, for short, of chapter 10, and then we've been to chapter 11, which is the miracle of, of course, raising Lazarus from the dead. Verse 40, now, he's now been, uh, tried to try to arrest him. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Now, um, you can look at one of the maps that are in the packet, but what Jesus is doing is he's going north. Jerusalem is in the Judean mountains, mountains of Judea, and he goes north following the Jordan River, and he's about four days north. We know that because of what is going to be detailed for us in chapter 11 when Lazarus dies and, and so on, but it's a four-day journey. So he goes north, about a four days, it's a significant distance to walk. Now he tell John is telling us that John the writer is telling us that because it is important we understand how far away Jesus is when Lazarus dies. And many came to him, and they said, John did. Speaking of John the Baptist, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true and many believed in him there. And again, John, this is short, it's pithy and it's over. But as Jesus goes four days north along the Jordan River, he's not silent there. He's ministering to people. These are people who would have remembered John the Baptist baptizing there two years earlier. And they say, John didn't do the messianic signs you're doing, but everything John said about you was true. Remember one of the things John said? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He must increase, I must decrease. And so people are making the connections between John's prophetic statements, John the Baptist's prophetic statements, and Jesus, and the result is they believe. And many believed in him there, where? Four days journey north along the, the Jordan River. So, I mean, this is one of those little it's two verses. I just, I want to know more about this. But in terms of what John, the writer, is doing, it's not important to him to tell us this. 
He doesn't explain this to us, but I really would like to know more. But he's setting the context so we understand how far Jesus is away from where Lazarus lives in Bethany. And he's going to die. But as you'll see, and as you already know, it's one of the more famous miracles. All right, now let's, let's just go right into chapter 11 then. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Now, I've, I've explained this before, but Bethany is on the Mount of Olives. It's just right over the Mount of Olives, east of Temple Mount. So it's very, very close to Jerusalem. The village of Mary and her sister Martha. Verse 2. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. That will be explained in the next chapter. John is stating this. We haven't read about this yet, but it's coming up. But John is just alerting us to the fact this is Mary, not Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary the sister of Lazarus, who is an extraordinary person in Christ's life. Her brother, Lazarus, was ill. Verse 3. So the sisters, remember that would be Mary and Martha, sent to him, meaning Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, that is a 100,000-foot view of what is about to happen. Nobody else understands that, but Jesus does. Notice verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, the Greek word is un, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in that place where he was. Now, does that strike you as a bit shocking? Because John explained in verse 5, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Verse 6, therefore, when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer north of Jerusalem. I think if Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and he heard Lazarus still, he got on a horse and as fast as he could get to Jerusalem. But that's not what the text says. Because in verse 4, Jesus said, this illness is that the Son of God may be glorified. Again, <clears throat> this is that 100,000 foot supernatural divine perspective on what is happening. Nobody else understands it that way but Jesus. Verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, meaning after this, after these two days, let us go to Judea again. Again, I explained earlier, that's a four-day walk along the Jordan River south. The disciples said, Rabbi, the Jews are not seeking to stone you, were they? Are you going there again? I mean, these guys want to kill you. You want to go back there? Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? And what he means by that is 12 hours of light in the day. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. If anyone walks in night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And, okay, now... That sounds a little weird. That's taking those themes back to verse uh, chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. I am the light of the world. I am here to penetrate the darkness of this world. So Jesus is saying, well, guys, we're going back to Judea because we are the light penetrating the darkness. I am about to deal with the epitome of darkness, death, the death of a loved one. It is the epitome of the ugliness of this fallen, sin-cursed, rebellious, broken world. And I, the light of the world, you with me, the light, we're going back into darkness to do something supernatural and glorious. Verse 11 
After saying these things, he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death. They thought he meant taking rest and sleep. As you undoubtedly know, sleep is a major New Testament metaphor for the death of a believer. It says in Acts 7 that Stephen, one of the earliest martyrs of the church, fell asleep. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, one of the great chapters on the, the, the rapture of the church, speaks of believers sleeping. The dead in Christ shall rise. Those who are dead in Christ, they're asleep. They will rise first. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. So here again is this big 100,000-foot perspective. Jesus has allowed all this to occur. He's delayed going to Lazarus. He's delayed going to Bethany. He's trying to explain to his disciples what he's doing, and then he drops this bombshell. Lazarus is dead, but I'm glad I wasn't there to save him from death, because this what I'm about to do is going to be an opportunity for you to believe. Now, let's make sure we understand this. These guys have already believed in Jesus. They're already committed to Jesus. So Christ is looking at this as we see always, always, always. The ministry of Jesus' miracles in the perspective of his disciples is didactic. It's to teach them truth, to deepen their faith, deepen their trust in him, because he's going back to the Father, and they're going to need that deepened faith and trust. So this isn't that they will ex experience that first instance of putting their faith in Christ, salvation. They already did that. This is to deepen their trust and faith in him. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called the twin, Didymus is the Greek word there, Didymus, by the way, I don't want to spend too much time on this bunny trail. But there are many who argue that Thomas is the twin of Matthew. Matthew, one of the other major disciples who wrote the first book of the New Testament. That Thomas and, and Matthew are of the same family. They're twins. Whether that's true or not is irrelevant. But you know who Thomas is. One of the twelve. He will doubt Jesus at the end and so on. But Thomas called the twin, said to his disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Real encouragement, huh? Thomas is, is really with the program, isn't he? It's a very fatalistic, almost cynical, all right, we'll go, might as well die with him now. That's kind of the sentiment of Thomas. And you just see, this is, this is one of the nuances of Thomas's character. He is easy to doubt. And here, this is not a statement of faith. This is a statement of cynical doubt, almost. So we're set up now in terms of the narrative. We're set up for understanding what Jesus is about to do, the extraordinary words he's going to state to Martha and later Mary, and then his amazing act of a messianic miracle of bringing someone who's died back to life in a very public setting where hundreds and hundreds of people would see it and ultimately thousands would hear of it. And that's exactly what's going to happen. So we have the context. We understand the situation. Any questions? All right. Now let's look at, look at what follows because the words of Jesus here are really, really remarkable words. You and I are very familiar with them, but you got to remember Martha is the first one who hears them. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. That just reminds us that where Jesus was, he, north of the of the Jerusalem, up along the Jordan River, it was four days' journey. So Lazarus had been dead for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem. 
about two miles off, I already explained, it's just in the east side of the, the Mount of Olives, just east of Temple Mount. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So in the little community of Bethany, their friends and others, and probably even some professional mourners, which was not unusual in the ancient world, are there consoling, joining with them in the grieving and mourning process. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 24, Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now that's important for you and me to step back and make sure we understand something. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the resurrection is taught. And so Martha is just reaffirming what she knew. Yes, in the last day, there will be a resurrection. So that's how she's thinking. But Jesus corrects her. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And I want to stop there. So Jesus is saying another one of his I am statements. And in your note packet on page six, I gave you that chart of the seven I am statements of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. And we've read and studied them in John 6, I'm the bread of life. John 8, I'm the light of the world. John 10, I'm the door. John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd. Now John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Now let's stop there for a minute. Let's think about that. Jesus has said to Martha, your son, your brother Lazarus is going to rise again. Yes, Lord, I know in the last days he will rise again. No, no, no. I am the resurrection and life. Get your eyes and thinking off of what you have been taught and get them focused on me, the person, the Son of God, the Messiah. Because Jesus is not only declaring that he'll bring about the resurrection, but that he, he is the cause. He is the means by which people will be resurrected. He is the means by which people will get, have eternal life. It isn't just an event, it's a person. And Jesus Christ is declaring to Martha that he is the means by which the resurrection will occur. He is the means by which eternal life will be given. So, I mean, it's extraordinary. This is an extraordinary claim of Christ. And he's trying to get Martha off the focus of the event and onto him as the person. So then he steps back and broadens this to a theological proposition. Whoever believes in me. Now that, again, the preposition there is different than the preposition I was talking to about Rush. This is ice, E-I-S. It has very much the idea of being in union with something. To be in something is to be in union with something. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he experiences the separation of the body and the soul. Yet he shall live. I am the one who is going to bring about the resurrection and eternal life. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die, i.e. eternal life. And then he goes back, generalizes it to everyone who believes in me, is in union with me, will never, will experience death. They will be resurrected and they will live forever. They will never die again. 
Then he turns to Martha. Do you believe this? Verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And she is Martha, that is, is restating messianic truth. She is quoting, really I should say alluding to Psalm 118, verse 26, coming into the world. So here's Martha. We we really see again how well taught Mary and Martha were. Mary, or excuse me, Martha reiterated, yes, the resurrection at the end. And here you see this woman, Martha, is alluding to a major psalm, Psalm 118, and alluding to it as she then declares, I do believe. I believe you're the Christ. I believe you are the Messiah. I believe you're the son of God, the one who's coming into the world. You're fulfilling that great Hillel Psalm of Psalm 118. And so, I mean, this is a, this is one of the most really marvelous dialogues, doctrinally speaking, that Jesus ever had with a human being. And it's a woman. And I say that only because in the light of the first century, the way women were viewed and looked at. And this incredible conversation they have is one of the most theologically nuanced and sophisticated of anyone in the, in the scriptures that Christ, Christ had a dialogue with. And so you, you just step away and, and from it as you think about it for it and just say, wow. This woman has experienced one of the greatest losses, the death of her brother, her statement of faith is such that she says, you know, Lord, if you'd have been there, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, oh, Martha, there's so much more going on here than you understand. Your, your, your brother will rise again. Oh, I know. In the end times, he will. No, Martha, I am the resurrection life. Get your focus on the event. Get your focus on me. Because to believe in me, be in union with me, will not only bring you back from physical death, it will bring you the gift of eternal life. Do you believe this? And with strong affirmation, yes, I do believe. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God coming into the world. You have invaded this dark world with the message of hope. And so, I mean, it's just a remarkable passage. It's a remarkable passage. I'm all excited about it. Are you guys as excited about it as I am? Any questions about that? We're excited about it too, Jim. Okay, good. <laughs> I mean, it's just a, it's a fabulous, fabulous dialogue between Jesus and this dear, dear woman. I have a question uh, related to the resurrection in the Old Testament. Um, were, I've uh, heard it said that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, one of their their lines of disagreement was whether something about the resurrection absolutely yes the sadducees denied the resurrection yeah. okay, i yes. just want to make sure i had they that denied right. that's right and well, uh and be in denying the resurrection um they're denying one of the major major teachings of old testament theology it's really but well, they are this is not something new testament it's more of a modern way of putting it the sadducees would have been the theological liberals of the day Whereas the Pharisees were the conservatives. And it's really interesting, if you go to the end of the book of Acts, when Paul is put on trial before the Sanhedrin, uh, it's really fascinating. Paul is very shrewd, and he does something which immediately divides the Sanhedrin, and he brings up the resurrection. And when he brings up the resurrection, the Pharisees start defending it, and the Sadducees start criticizing it. And the unity of the Sanhedrin is broken down by the Apostle Paul, extremely shrewd move on his part over the doctrine of the resurrection. What was the basis on which they denied their resurrection? Did they have scriptural basis or they... Oh, no, no, they're not. Well, part of of their, I mean, Russ, to to discuss the Sadducees, uh, it takes more than just a couple minutes. But for the most part, 
there are two very distinctive things about the the uh, the Sadducees. Number one, they only read the first five books of the Old Testament. They they only regarded those of author as authoritative. In other words, the Pentateuch, the, the first five books. So they they didn't read any of the prophets. They didn't adhere to, regard as infallible or authoritative any of the prophets. And that would include, you know, Ezekiel and Daniel and Job and the Psalms, all of the all of the parts of Scripture that in the Old Testament have so much prophetic material about the coming of the Messiah. <clears throat> Number two, they they denied the existence of angels. So basically, um, Russ, this this is what explains it. The Sadducees are so influenced by Greco-Roman thinking, Greco-Roman rationalist thinking that they begin basically to deny anything supernatural. And so they become the anti-supernaturalists of the day. And therefore, you know, the resurrection is one of the most important supernatural teachings of Scripture to embrace. But if you're an anti-supernaturalist, you're not going to embrace it. And so they didn't. They made fun of it. They mocked it. They were very influenced by the Stoics and others coming out of the Greco-Roman world. Okay, does that explain it enough for you? Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. Now look at verse 20. Oh, yes, please. please. I'd like to go back to verse 4, where there's... Back to verse 4, okay. Go ahead. I'm just wondering, I mean, I'm really impressed with the whole concept here, that there are things that that happened. In this case, it was Lazarus' death that worked for... Uh, in the long run to glorify the Lord. I just wonder if that's a biblical principle that's still applicable today when we experience things that sometimes can be seen as negative or clearly reversals that, you know, if we take the long-term perspective, we see how God has used them in just amazing ways we could never have contemplated absent that happening. Oh, absolutely, Jim. Absolutely. Uh, and this is this is the hard thing for us as human beings, albeit Christians who love and know and love the Lord. But yes, God can take so many of these tragedies and difficulties and trials, etc., of life that are so difficult for us, and bring glorious things out of them. So yes, that is a. I'm not sure I would want to make the the, the, the the tribute to this a binding principle, but because sometimes <laughs> things just happen. But for the most part, God does bring glorious things out of our trials and tribulations. And for the most part, sometimes you and I don't even know all that God is doing through it. And I think that's part of our, and I mean, all of you, I think, in the class would, would agree with this, would affirm this. The hardest thing for you and me in situations like this, I know you have dealt with cancer in, 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 in your life and cancer with loved ones, your, your, your first wife and so on, how hard that is to be able to still trust the Lord in the midst of that and have confidence in the Lord that he still loves you and He's still going to bring things out of this that you could never, ever envision. And so our, that Jesus says something like this in verse 4, should affirm in our hearts and our minds again, God is in control of things. And what seems so difficult for us, he can bring good out of it. And that's just the way he is. And therefore, it's important for us to trust him with that. And that's easy for you and me to say this in the comfort of our homes and so on on a very hot afternoon. But that's, that is a truth that the scriptures keep affirming again and again for us. So, yeah, does that kind of get it, your, the point you're making? Yeah, it, I mean, it certainly does. And I, I guess I've learned in my lifetime that you have to view the things that happen over the perspective of time. Sometimes the instant something happens, nothing makes sense. That's only true. over time when you can see God's hand work yeah. at work, then you see the truth of verse four. That's right. That's right. And I think um, sometimes we can see what God is doing. And over time, 
days, weeks, months, years, decades, even later. But sometimes we don't. Sometimes we may not see the impact or result, but yet we know God is at work. And I mean, that's one of the values. It's a very difficult book to study, but that's one of the values of studying the book of Job. Because that is the thesis of the book of Job. And it's just worked out chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. These people don't know the big 100,000 foot picture of what's going on. God does. Job's struggling with all this. His friend Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz are trying to explain it. And they're about as helpful as, as a door. They have nothing good to say to him. And yet at the end, you just see this marvelous pulling the things together as God and Job have a dialogue and so on. Yeah. Well, Jim, that's great. I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that into the discussion. That's so important. Well, let's move into verse 28 then. When she had said this, that she would be Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here, the rabbi, the teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she, Mary, heard it, she rose quickly, went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, meaning Bethany, where their home was, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Exactly the same thing Martha said. I always find that wonderful in the sense that how deeply these two women trusted Jesus to be able to say, had you been here, you wouldn't have died. That's a rather extraordinary statement of faith. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. Now here, these next couple of verses are very important verses. Don't miss these. Try to follow me as I try to unpack these verbs and the way in which Christ is saying these things. So Jesus observes her weeping, observes the crowds weeping. He was deeply moved. That is one word in the Greek language. It is a rare word in terms of the New Testament. Deeply moved. It's a turn to express an inner feeling, a feeling deep inside of sorrow, of, of not despair, but of sorrow and overwhelming grief in his spirit, and greatly troubled, a very different word. This word, again, one single word in the Greek language, could be translated outraged. So you have this incredibly difficult phrase to, that's one Greek word, to really explain. Deeply moved, and, and it's an inner, an inner almost grief and, and heart-wrenching hurt that's impossible to put into words, and greatly troubled. Very different word, almost an opposite emotion. It's one of outrage. So it's sorrow, deep, almost inexplicable sorrow and outrage. What's Jesus outraged at? Death. Death is the enemy of the human race because death is the penalty for sin. And death is the grip that Satan has on every human being that breathes. And Jesus is outraged at this. And in Christ's divine perspective, this time it's not going to win. I'm going to do something. I mean, he's ultimately going to do something about it when he goes to the cross, dies that substitutionary death, and is resurrected. 
But this is now an immediate response. Jesus is going to do something. And he said, where, uh, verse 34, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. And so he, you see this deeply moved, as I tried to explain, it's very difficult to explain that, that inner grief and hurt and sorrow mixed with outrage, Jesus weeps. And there's been a lot of discussion about that. There really has. Because Jesus is weeping. It, it demonstrates that he is undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in one person. He's the God-man. So as the God-man, he experiences all the emotions of humanity, and he weeps. And it, you see this, this incredible response of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate God on earth, experiencing all this emotion and experiencing it to the degree that he breaks down and weeps. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some said, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind man? Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? So there again, you see these two responses. <laughs> Look how much he loved him. Another saying, well, you know, he could have saved him. If he could open the eyes of the blind man, it takes us back a couple of chapters that we studied, chapter 9. And so that's still very much in everybody's mind. Look what he did. Well, he could have kept this guy from dying. So now what's Jesus going to do? Verse 36. Then Jesus deeply moved again. It's the same one single word we saw in verse 33. He came to the tomb. It was a cave. Stone lay against it. That's the normal, the normal burial site for someone that was fairly wealthy. So Lazarus was a man of some means. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you? that if you believed, you would see the glory of God that takes you back to their discussion. Verse 41, they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said on this on account of the people standing that they may believe that you sent me. So this miracle is messianic. This miracle is didactic. It's to teach truth. This miracle is to lead people to faith. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Now, please note that. He did not speak this softly. He did not whisper this. The language of the Greek is he almost screamed it. Lazarus, come out. Here is the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, eternal, creator, God speaking. And that which is dead comes back to life. God speaking to that which is dead and restoring them to life. Now, I one time heard an old Baptist preacher, when he was preaching on this, say, Jesus had to say Lazarus' name, because if he would have just said, come out, every person that ever died would have come back to life. That's good Baptist preaching. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I really don't. But it sure sounds really good, as an old Baptist preacher used to say. But Jesus is being very specific, and he says this again, verse 42, that they may believe you sent me. They are witnessing something. The crowds there, dozens, perhaps a hundred, maybe a little more, around the gravesite of Lazarus, outside of Bethany, just over Mount of Olives, just a little east of Temple Mount, an extraordinary miracle. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, Sudarion. Now, I want to comment here. I want to stop before I look at the last part. 
I would invite you to go to chapter 20 of this book and read of the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus came back to life, the linen was lying neatly on the gravesite in that stone tomb on that ledge. The sudarion, that cloth that covered his face, it's like a napkin, was folded neatly on top. The contrast between Jesus' resurrection and Lazarus' resuscitation is marked. Lazarus comes out of the grave, not like Jesus will come out of the grave in the literal physical bodily resurrection. Lazarus is being resuscitated, brought back to life. He still got the strips of his grave wrappings. He still got the cloth over his face. So Jesus then commands them, unbind him, let him go. They don't have to do that with Jesus. His resurrection is the first fruits of what will happen to you and me. If you and I die before Christ comes back, we'll be in a box or we'll be cremated or whatever it is. And the God is going to put all those atoms and molecules back together, re-stitch everything back together, and will shoot up into the air to be with Jesus. Lazarus is brought back from life. He's resuscitated. It is not a literal, physical, end-time, final resurrection that will be characteristic of all those who will populate heaven. I'm making that comment just to make sure that you understand so it's a fantastic miracle, an incredible messianic miracle, but it's not a resurrection. That's what Jesus experiences as the God-man. Read about that in chapter 20. And his cloths and his wrappings and, and his napkin, his sudarion, are lying neatly on the slab of the cave where he was buried. Quite a contrast. So, what time is it? So what, well, let me stop there for a minute. Are there any questions about 38 through 44, the, the language as well as the act of Christ in resuscitating Lazarus? All right, good. Now, I know we'll get, get all this done, but we're, we're doing really well. Let's, let's look now, let's look now excuse me, I had to get that other sheet. Let's look now at the, the results of this. Many of the, in verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Just as Christ had said at the end of verse 42, as he's praying to the Father, that they may believe you sent me. Many believed. But look at verse 46. But some of them, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, that may or may not be a nefarious, nefarious means evil, an evil act on their part. They may just believe, well, we really need a, the, the spiritual leadership to know what happened. This is a fantastic miracle. Now, I'm not necessarily impugning the motives of everybody that went to tell the Pharisees, but the consequence is going to be the same, because this is going to heighten their intent to kill Jesus, which is, is really astounding, isn't it? So the chief priests, I'm in verse 47, and the Pharisees, the chief priests, that is a phrase that refers to all the priestly families that were a part of the Sanhedrin. Not the high priest, but the priestly families. They call them the three priests. Gathered to council. That's how the ESV translates it. That means the Sanhedrin. So they gather the Sanhedrin together, 70-plus Jewish leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, etc. This is what they say. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. 
So this is an important insight. In back of their thinking, behind their thinking, is a framework of fear, but it's got two parts. Fear is that if more and more people believe in this Jesus, and more and more people follow this Jesus, it's going to have a very personal consequence, and it's going to have a national consequence. Personal consequence, we're going to lose our place, verse 48. We're going to lose our position of power. We're going to lose our positions of privilege. We're going to lose our positions of influence. This is going to be devastating for us. We're going to lose everything. In addition, Rome will come with their legions from Caesarea and crush this movement. Because as more and more people are following Jesus, it's going to create more and more of an uproar, more and more instability. And Rome always deals with that in one way, brute military force. So in back of all this is their personal thinking and their national thinking. If everybody follows this Jesus, we're going to lose everything. Now, Jim? Yes, please. Um, um, I'd like to see if you could fix something for me. This says that uh, the main concern is we're going to lose our place. We're going to lose the nation. Um, but in other places, it seems to indicate that because they missed the Messiah because they were looking for a military leader to throw off the, the yoke of Rome. Is that second part incorrect? Or is are they saying that the Romans are greater than God here? Or there's a disconnect between those two statements? Well, um, I'm not sure there's a disconnect. There well, if, they, if they're saying, oh, my goodness, Rome's going to come kick our butt. But wait a minute. If this is the Messiah, bring them on should be the result. Well, the it, it, it could be, but I don't, I don't think this necessarily is flying in the face of that patriotic desire for some messianic figure to rise up and overthrow Rome. They do not believe Jesus is that figure at all. So, I mean, Russ, right. in, in back of this is they don't even believe Jesus is close to being their Messiah. And so their fear is he's like a lot of these other false messiahs that have come up over the last 40, 50 years. And Rome always deals with us. So what will happen is we'll lose our position and our influence and power, and we're going to lose our nation. You see, under, under Roman rule from A.D. 6 to the, the present when this is being written, Judea was a semi-autonomous province of Rome because the, the, the Roman Empire allowed the Jews a degree of independence. They could worship God the way they wanted to. They could do their sacrifices. They could collect their temple tax, etc., etc. They'll lose all that because of this crazy false messiah. So that's how they're looking at it. Does that clarify? I mean, they're, they're not embracing him as the Messiah and liberator anyway. They think he's crazy, and they're afraid that if he is in any way successful in getting more followers, Rome's going to move, and we're going to lose everything. We even lose that semi-autonomous status where we can run our own show, run our own sacrifices, run our own temple, still collect the temple tax, all that stuff. They're going to lose all that. That's their fear because of this false, crazy Messiah, this Jesus. And so before Rome acts, they want to kill him. All right. Now, oh my, I think I'd better stop. Um, because what Caiaphas, he is the chief priest. He's the high priest. What he says in verse 49 and 50 is really, really important. And it's going to take me five, six minutes to get into that. So I'm going to stop there, and next week we'll pick right up with verse 49. All right, well, this is a great class today. I mean, I loved it. I hope you were as excited about all this as I was. That's so a great passage. It's central doctrinal truth about the Lord Jesus. 
And it's really insightful what is happening in the response of everybody to Jesus. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to let you go, and I'll see you next week. Father, we're grateful for the Word of God. It is powerful. It is, it is, is so important. It, it's like a two-edged sword. It cuts deeply. It exposes. It's the light. It's like a lamp. It, it, is, it is helpful and necessary and beneficial for sound doctrinal teaching, for training in righteousness, all of the things that Paul writes about in 2 Timothy 3. We're thankful that you give us the privilege of studying it together. Thank you for giving me the honor and privilege to lead in this study. I pray for these men. We've covered amazing truth today, tremendous truth about Jesus and, and who he is and what he was doing here in, in, this, in, in the end of AD 32 and the beginning of AD 33. These are profound teachings about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Help these men in their lives, help them in their work, help them in their relationships with their loved ones, help them to be men of faith and men of God who represent you well to a world that desperately needs to hear the truth. I commit them to you in Christ's name, amen. See you next week. Have a great week and stay cool.